0: So I I really learned the way you love people was to sow in health factors to really push those hard in the business. Okay, Cohesive leadership is huge. Someone in Atlanta once said about us, you can't see any light between those guys. I didn't know what he meant by that at first, but he meant we were all really thinking together.
1: Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, where you will find and apply God's wisdom to your work. I'm Ken Kennard, and our team at VOCA Center aims to inspire, challenge, and equip you to follow Jesus in the vocational dimension of your life. As we get started with this episode, I want to thank our generous listeners who have become donors and made this work possible. We're so grateful for your support. VOCA funders sign up to change lives by changing work. And if you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, invest in VOCA. You can do that by going to vocacenter.org give and join us today. This is the second in a three-part conversation about resilient leadership with David Ridley. He's the founding CEO of Invesco Real Estate. For several years, David has been working with us on the framework that we use for helping businesses and organizations thrive in the midst of constant change and disruption. So if you're part of a business or organization and you lead a team and you want it to win despite the challenges, then this series is for you. All right, here we go, let's listen in.
2: So David, welcome back. It's good to be back.
0: How long have we known each other now? Well, that's a good good question. Guess um, guessing eight years. You're the eight. smart guy. Um, I'm the what? You're the smart guy. So. Okay, good, we've got, that on, <laughs> we've
2: got that on record. I think we met in like 18 or 19. Huh. And a mutual friend connected us. And we had dinner in the city with our wives.
0: Yeah, remember that. And, and I, I always tended to guess too short. So I went longer this time. Well, that's funny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I would have guessed it was before that.
2: Well, you know, a year with me is like seven yeah, it's, years. So it's yeah, like it's dog like, years. Yeah, it's dog years.
0: <laughs> 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 For sure. <laughs> oh, boy.
2: All right. So we're talking about this model, and it's got three parts, three pillars. The first is a secure center. So to build an enduring organization, uh, to win in your in your business, to win in your life, you need to have a secure center. The pillar two is... Uh, You need to enlist extreme team engagement. You're going to get the full investment, all your people. And then the third pillar, which we're going to talk about in a subsequent conversation, is uh, delivering elite client experience. So let's talk about pillar two a little bit. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit in our last last conversation. You said you came to the realization that there was no way you're going to compete and win if you were just dependent on one person to have like all the answers and be the star. Was that, was that like a dawning re- revelation or was that like, there was a moment and you realized there's no way we're going to be able to do this if we don't have a great team.
0: Yeah. Um, in a way it, it did come down to a moment, but, uh, as I said in our first podcast, I was naive to even try this business. Hmm. Uh, I had learned about the the uh, funds management business on behalf of these large pension funds, endowments, foundations, we'll call them institutions, I would learned that's where all the money was. And I worked at a large life insurance company, and we were investing just our own money, but they saw the light and started moving towards these macro trillions of dollars of money to start trying to manage. So when I was offered the opportunity to do it, I took it thinking, well, if I fail, I'll fall forward. I remember that was in my mind. I was a young guy around 29. So I was really naive, as I'd said last time. So I, uh, I took it on, not really having much of a model to follow. But through the first two years, uh, realizing how stiff the competition was, the J.P. Morgans and Morgan Stanleys of the world, etc. I started to realize I don't have a chance to do this if I don't have a strong team. If I don't have some smart people around me, I can't be that guy. You know, I'm not Warren Buffett, and I'm young, and I don't have the experience these folks have. So that came to mind.
2: Yes. So all that early on, the challenge, the, the steepness of the climb kind of made you realize this was important.
0: Yeah, this is a lot deeper and tougher than I had given it credit for.
2: So when we talk about Pillar 2, say a little bit more about how you would define it.
0: Pillar 2... Uh, comes of the realization that you're not in competition with your colleagues uh if you help if you hope to compete you've got to build really strong teams that can work together and we call it extreme team engagement extreme team engagement and i realized that had to happen for us to have a chance so there's a room i told you a story about a epiphany i had in a hotel room one night when i finally realized i was going to fail right And that I had to do more than just rely on myself. Uh And I was not going to run this anymore. I was going to rely on God to run this and to help me to own this. So I began to realize I had to hire super smart, talented people, and I had to rely on them. And we had to work together as a team, or we had no chance of competing against the uh, older, more mature firms, and really smart firms that were already out there having success. Hmm.
2: It's always a, attributed as an African proverb, but it says, "If you want to go far, go, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together."
0: Yeah, that's a great proverb. I've and, heard you say that before, and, and it's perfect.
2: And it sounds like that's the the shift you went through. Yes, it it really was. And some of your passion for pillar two and for a team culture actually came from some negative experiences earlier on in your career. And I've heard you tell you say, you know, you learn, sometimes you learn what good looks like by being forced to see what bad looks like.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I got to see what bad looks like right out of college. Um, I went to work for a small life insurance company here in Dallas, and who happened to have a very big guy, 6'5", big baritone voice who ran this particular group I was in. It was in a real estate area, uh, investing area. And this guy uh, just had this, he was brutal. Uh, he had a habit of really pushing others down to make himself look smart, uh, talking behind their backs, uh, just really stepping on you. Uh, every two weeks, he'd hand me my paycheck and look at me and look kind of seriously, say, do you think you really earned this? You know, he he was a guy who gave you no quarter uh, when it came time to make you feel good or give you a pat on the back. And I had that for four years. So
2: you didn't report him to HR?
0: <laughs> no. No, I didn't Didn't think that would help. Interesting.
2: Are there other experiences along the way where you just became more and more passionate about the need for a team approach?
0: Honestly, it was just the... the uh, uh, it was overwhelming the market the the smart ivy league new york based or chicago la based firms that were out there that were so good Uh, they were smart they had great personalities they really knew how to engage with the big public pension funds where most of the money was Hmm. so i i knew right then man i uh, why did I do this? I'm dead if I can't get smarter and in, in find people who can help us be smarter and work in, in working a team. That's just, it was it was obvious, it was common sense. Probably motivated by the weeks worth of savings I had in my bank. So. Yeah,
2: so it's, it's born out of necessity in a lot of ways. But there's also that sense of you're going against the grain of your industry, which at least from the outside tends to be a star culture.
0: Yeah, like most businesses, I think it's a little different now than it was back then. But back in the day, it was the John Wayne um, mystique, I call it, you know, people felt like they, to be a leader, you had to have the answers. You had to leave and come back and have the magic answer. And I saw a lot of that. And um, some people can do that, or at least they could fake they could do that. But that wasn't my nature to try to do that nor within my capabilities Hmm. to do that. That's
2: really interesting how different it is. I mean, I've heard you describe it as a hub and spoke model almost. Talk about that a
0: little bit. Yeah, um, the hub and spoke I call it. And uh, I've experienced it because I worked in it and that's where you have a boss and we're all the spokes. She or he's the hub and you line up outside the door and you get in and you get your information Then you run back to your office and you've got some information no one else has and you shut your door you Mm -hmm. know and nobody gets smarter but they continue to look smart but you know you're just part of it that's high risk isn't it it's high high risk for the business yeah high risk in every way Um, a lot of those folks to be honest they survive because they're in a business where it's pretty fixed like hmm. the life company i was with then the small life they had their general funds they weren't out competing for third-party clients okay he didn't have to be that good he could just survive hmm. okay but if you're out in the in the real live market you know in the jungle, in the jungle. where you kill yeah. what you eat or eat what you kill i mean hey uh uh-uh. or get eaten yeah which i spent a lot of time but yeah it is absolutely more imperative when you're out when you're out competing because more so today, probably people have choices and they know it and they move more. Hmm. You know, they're willing to move They know what their choices are. Yeah. Because of the web. Yeah. yeah. Information is very uh, ubiquitous today. Hey, that's a little word, ubiquitous. I learned that from YouTube. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so there is a business reason for this. Uh, if you have one person that has all the answers, all the sort of institutional slash market knowledge, then you there's a risk that they're, well, there's a risk that they won't be able to keep up with rapid change. There's a risk that they get hit by a bus. I mean, there's lots of risks involved um, with kind of neglecting pillar two. Talk about some of the, we'll talk about the spiritual connection to pill, pillar two for you. Now, I'm just curious how you see this idea of team connecting with your Christian faith. And any particular biblical principles or verses or...
0: Yeah, it's, it's remarkable, the Bible, God's truths, especially in the New Testament, where I, I thrive much more. So many of the principles and the laws and the, uh, the, the truths that you find in the New Testament are not just great for causing you to thrive as a human being, but they cause you to thrive in business, And and an example, as I said last time, is the second greatest commandment was love others as you would yourself. Okay, people feel that. It's not what you say or do. It's how they feel after they've dealt with you for a few years. Hmm. And so that is um, just one example of biblical truth in the marketplace. We're all human beings first. And people want to feel respected and delegated to and empowered. And that's how you love people at work.
2: So you're a CEO of this company that's either going to grow and survive survive or die. And you've got, as you've described them, they're not pedigree people, but they're still smart and driven people. And everything's being measured all the time because that's the nature of the business. How, how do you show love? How did you show love to them? Do you think in that kind of environment, what did that look like? Well, we, I'm not, are you a hugger, David? Is that what we're
0: talking about here? Not not much. Um, honestly, uh, we'd set goals for ourselves. I remember when it was a billion dollars of assets under management, okay? Then it went to five. So we all had goals, uh, obviously earnings goals. You know, we didn't want to lose money. In those early days, we lost money once. At least we made a little money. So we all had the goals, but honestly, the, I remember one of my first employees came up, and, and his, my ultimate boss had asked him, why do they like working for me? And this, this guy said, "Well, oh, because he's just a nice guy. Hmm. And, and I remember that. I thought, well, that's not very flattering. But I found out later what I was doing and what I learned to do was to love people through many, many health factors that I would try to sow into the business, like trust Um, They could say whatever they wanted. I'm not going to make fun of them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Like empowerment, uh, like a lot of positive feedback. Hmm. And yet, if someone messed up, then you'd give them that too. You just try to make it quicker. So I I really learned the way you love people was to sew in health factors to really push those hard in the business. Okay, Cohesive leadership is huge. Someone in Atlanta once said about us, you can't see any light between those guys. Hmm. I do not know what he meant by that at first. But he meant we were all really thinking together. Um, I had an argument once with our COO in front of a group of us in a meeting, and they all said to me later, or one of them said to me later, you know, I felt like I was watching my parents argue. That was terrible. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And, uh, but the point is, there's lots of factors, maybe too many to go into on, on this podcast but they go in to being classified they've been named i didn't name them this but they named them health factors for me there were cultural factors that i had to really push for people to feel valuable
2: so part of it was that you intentionally created a certain kind of culture
0: intentionally
2: and that's how you uh, loved your employees we wrote it it down down. but you also talked about love yeah in corporate settings
0: yeah well we we wrote it down what it was to look like Hmm in in our value statements but also the 10 rules of the road we drafted that you know about and we would talk about hey look raise your hand as i said last time if you're if you're not broken you know i mean we're all broken let's just love each other and forgive each other because the competition's out there that's our threat
2: now i'm sure you had people that didn't you know you didn't that didn't share necessarily your faith based
0: values or perspective you know we most of the people how did they respond to this yeah most weren't connecting with me on a faith-based basis at all, but they did on a moral basis, hmm. and they very much appreciated the culture that came from our leadership really caring in every one of our leaders, knowing they weren't allowed to do the the what I experienced right out of college, the big bully. They weren't allowed to do it. One time, I actually looked at one of my partners, and I said to him, and I'm not proud of this now, but I said... If you change the chemistry in the room like that again, I'm going to lead you out of here. You can't do this because that was a horrible meeting. Okay. You just had to keep each other accountable because with power, there comes the ability to do that. Hmm. You can't do that. You've got to treat people with a great deal of love and respect. And that builds trust. And now you're having great meetings. Now you have people really So you were confronting smarter.
2: him on his behavior. Yeah. And you regret it?
0: I could have done it better yeah so definitely. you could have
2: confronted him about his love and res- lack of love and respect by, with a little bit more love and not respect. not loving
0: him at all <laughs> for a minute uh, we actually did 360 training and he went off and had that and he found out he had some of these characteristics came back and would do great most of the time but then you'd see him kind of fall back into that and we'd pull him back over you mm-hmm. know and And I'm sure I'm the same. You know, I've many times was told that I was unreasonable or whatever. And I was, as I said in the last one, I was known for saying I'm sorry a lot. Because by nature, to compete in this kind of market, you've got to have a bit of a type A personality. It's how you control that and show respect to others and tolerance. And you're not going to be perfect.
1: Based on our research, the top challenge people are facing at work today is burnout. And ignoring the warning signs can lead to more serious health issues, decreased performance, and an overall decline in your quality of life. At Voca Center, we understand how burnout can mess with your well-being, productivity, and overall happiness. That's why we created the Burnout Recovery Program. Reignite your fire and embark on a journey to lasting well-being with our Burnout Recovery Program. To find out more and to get started, visit vocacenter.org burnoutrecovery burnout recovery. That's vocacenter.org burnoutrecovery burnout recovery. If you're overwhelmed or if you've already gotten to the burnout stage, you don't have to stay there. Reach out to our coaching team. We're here to help.
2: Well, that, that statement there just leads me to another thought. that's part of pillar two, which is, you know, not everybody's going to want to play as part of a team, they're not all going to fit the culture. And you got you guys as a leadership team were able to identify the characteristics of an ideal team player, team member. And one of them was that type A, like you wanted. What'd you call it? Fire in the belly, something like yeah, that. Yeah, we had
0: a uh, humility test in our minds. Was this person humble? Did they have a teamwork environment? And did they have a you know a teamwork ethos? And did we just say did they have a fire in their belly, or are they really one of these folks that like to get things done, and not just your traditional list maker?
2: What's the humility? What's the hum- how? What's the humility test?
0: Well, it's it's just not focused on yourself all the time. Hmm. I, I was interviewing a person for a key position. I'll never forget this, and I could tell he was a, he thought very highly of himself, just by the things he would say, the names he would drop. There was a lack of humility. But the last straw was he walked over to this picture on my shelf, and it was a picture of a group of the senior partners at the bigger firm of Invesco, and he pointed to it and he says, by golly, I want to be in that picture. Hmm. And he hadn't even gotten a job yet. You know, He hadn't proved himself or anything. So and
2: somehow that crossed the line. That wasn't just, ambit- that wasn't healthy ambition. There's something about that that set off a warning for you.
0: It showed a bit of a star system. Hmm and you would never say that Uh, at our firm you could hardly say the word i or me it was we and us and to this day i have a hard time saying i and it was because it became part of our ethos we were a team we made a decision on an investment that went wrong it wasn't anyone's fault it was a team we all said yes in the investment committee or whoever was in there nobody did anything on their own we got as smart as we could we iq compounded together the best we could around every major decision and it was never someone's fault now if you were um, a star system kind of person you would tend to weed yourself out because you wouldn't survive you, you couldn't
2: yeah it's, a, it's an important point because it's it's then it's the idea that a good culture a good, healthy company culture, organizational culture is only good for the people who wanna work in that kind of culture. It's not it's not necessarily good for
0: everybody. Totally. And you know, there's different cultures. They, The consultants are the gatekeepers that we have to impress to get to the pension funds so we can manage their money. Okay, they nicknamed us the Boy Scouts. This other fantastic, amazing firm that had been around since the late 60s, I believe, named Reef, they named them the frat boys, huh. okay? They, it's two I think we'll be interviewing them next. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a great, great handle on checking your ego at the door. A lot of the same rules we have, because I talked to them, we're all friends, and I've. <laughs> they're just a whole different kind of breed, and yet they created a lot of great accountability and were great competitors.
2: That's great. Yeah. That's, a, that's an important point, too. It kind of goes back to something we said last time, about sniffing out different cultures and figuring out the one that's right for you, which is a career learning. Um, You just said something about check your ego at the door, which I believe is part of your framework for meetings. And most of us hate meetings, but you guys, I don't know whether you liked your meetings or not, but it was a critical part of this extreme team engagement part of your culture say talk to us about meetings and how did you you know how did you optimize your meetings
0: yeah today i hate meetings i do everything i can to avoid them but in order to get smarter and really compete you obviously have to have some great meetings okay one of the rules i learned was from a competitor and by the way you don't have to invent everything that makes you great hmm. okay it's already out there for the most part And I heard one of my colleagues at Reef mention they check their ego at the door. Wow, that struck me because that's what we were doing. So we came up with some rules that evolved over time. And the first one was check your ego at the door. The second one was there was no rank in the room. The third one was if you're at the table, you have an obligation to dissent. If you're not going to add, then leave. And the fourth one was you leave as friends everybody in the company knew these rules we even had rules those on the wall people people knew that so we'd get in and we'd get to it i'd go in every time thinking i was right and i was almost always wrong at least part way because there was enough trust in the room to get the best solutions how many topics would you cover in a typical war room uh it depends on the topic uh war rooms got invented around competing for new clients and that's where they got their name i don't have a clue how that happened anymore but
2: this wasn't like your routine staff meeting or something a no. war room is different no,
0: this this is not your quarterly executive committee same rules applied at those but these are around taking on challenges the first challenges we had to take on were even having clients otherwise we'd have no other challenges So it was all around understanding our competitors, getting the list of their names on the wall, all their pros and their cons against us, and where we stacked up and figuring out ways we could compete with them. And that's how we started winning. We got really smart. Sometimes we'd have four war rooms over a competition coming up.
2: That's where IQ compounding would take place. You're getting the best ideas on the table. It's unfiltered. That's right. Constructive conflict. And then... Unit, there's a sense of alignment unity that you once the process is over how many more rooms it takes there's a sense of we're all headed in this direction
0: together yes and you didn't have it didn't have to be unanimous sometimes it wasn't usually it was usually you'd build a consensus sometimes it wasn't a total consensus but that person was never allowed to say i told you so hmm. that was unheard of so go back
2: to the rules let's go through each one of those just let's let's as as My friend and colleague uh, likes to say, Sarah likes to say, double click on each of those. Uh, The first one I think was, uh, check your ego at the door. Yeah. Just expand on that a little
0: bit. I mean, you walk in there, in any meeting, any board, I've been in thousands of board meetings for the clients and everything else that I did. Uh, Everybody walks in there with an ego. Everybody wants to be heard. Hmm. You wanna make that one statement, you know, that everybody respects and you added value, okay? none of that's allowed you're going in the room you're all equal i don't care if you're a founder like i was or if you're an asset manager working for us you're all equal you all have the same brain power you're all in there with that one issue or maybe more that you're in there to solve so check your ego at the door means you're going to be in there and you're going to be vulnerable and you're going to be humble and you're just going to put it out there
2: it's like you said earlier you go in thinking it's going to break one way and then you're at least open to it
0: every time a different way i would walk out every time and think golly i wasn't right that was better Hmm. how
2: about how about no rank in the room i think that's a significant one especially when you're you or the ceo how do you how do you make that live
0: that was really only stated to support the no to check your ego at the door Okay. No rank in the room was the second step to that, that uh, just because you happen to be COO or VP or whatever, we didn't use titles like that, but it didn't matter. Everybody was equal in that room and that's good. what we could have written and it, it, it too complicated, but then there's no retribution after the meeting, if you disagree. Right.
2: Yeah, that's probably part of that. But you didn't usually given. lead the meetings either, right? Like you yeah. had somebody else facilitate it, which yeah. is another way to kind of reinforce the idea that you're a participant, not in charge.
0: I started by leading them, but then I sat down because I couldn't write as well as Max or mm-hmm. spell as well as Max and, and others, and they would get up and they yeah, Max put,
2: is really good with little words.
0: He, little words, he's good. <laughs> no, actually, Max isn't. But it, <laughs> uh, so he comes we, off
2: as somebody would be. Anyway, but
0: he would going. go in there, and he would already have the board set up So pretty much set up. So when we got in there, we could hit the ground running. Hmm. And, you know, part of the hardest part of the meeting for me was deciding, okay, who should be in the room? Who's the best folks to be in this room for this challenge? And if it's winning new clients, that's a different group than it is solving a problem around technology, Hmm. which could be a big, expensive decision. Right. But who's in the room? Because it can't be too few and it can't be too many. Hmm. So that was one of the biggest decisions before the meetings.
2: That's good. That's good. And then the, la- the the other one that you said I just thought it's interesting that I had never heard said out loud until I
0: met you was the obligation to dissent. Yes, uh there are people who get real quiet. And if you're quiet, there's a problem. Hmm. Either you're threatened or you're just an introvert. and either way, you're no good to the meeting. You don't hmm. get to sit in a meeting for free. If you're not going to add value, then we should have selected someone else. There's nothing more maddening Hmm. than to have a quiet person in a meeting. So I would many times over the years, I'd say, do you have anything to add here? What's going on in your head? Because we want to know. It's all about getting the best answer. I don't care. I don't remember who comes up with the solutions. What we care about is what we walk out with.
2: And wasn't there, that's really good because I think, yeah, you're not. What's the way you say? we're paying for you basically to be in this meeting? So we expect a contribution. Um, the obligation to dissent also means that if I disagree, I have to say it.
0: You have to say it. You have and if I obligation. don't say it,
2: you're going to assume I do agree.
0: Yeah, we're going to assume you agree.
2: So it's my it's my responsibility as a meeting participant, basically to voice my 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 perspective. Yeah. And if I don't, then I we're going to assume you're on board.
0: You have a lot of type A people, as I said, or they probably wouldn't be where they are. They're driven. My goal as founder and CEO, whatever, if I'm in a meeting, it wasn't to come up with the answer. It was to make sure those rules are being adhered to, that we really were getting everything on the table. I can't tell you how many times we've talked about things on the table. Get everything on the table. And also to make sure if the sparks started to fly sometime, I'd have to sit there and manage that. And I did a lot. You know, we're all like kids, and I have to say, come on now, you know, let's back off. And we'd sit down and start over. Right. You know, some kind of like den father yeah. <laughs> of the meeting,
2: right. referee almost. Yeah, that's good, David. What do you say to the person who um, is not a senior? They're not the CEO. They're not in the C-suite. They're somewhere in the middle, and they're working with an organization like they they would love to be part of an organization that. You know, has these kinds of productive meetings, and it values each team member, and even thinks about the idea of how do we create this kind of culture, which is ultimately rooted in the idea of love for your neighbor. Like they would love to be a part of a company like that, but they're not, and they have limited. You know, they maybe they're a manager or or a middle middle manager. They supervise some people, but they don't really shape the culture of the whole firm. How do you
0: advise people like that? In other words, they're not. Implementing as their small pod within the firm, that kind of culture is that what you're? Well, asking?
2: they could potentially, but they can't control the culture of the firm. You know, they're they're not at the senior, they're not in the C-suite room, they're right. not the CEO. They
0: have no voice, yes, really. That's right. Okay, we came to believe many years ago from a different competitor. This happened to be a competitor we never beat. Hmm. They finally converted to a REIT. Thank the Lord, hmm. and got What's out a of here. Real estate investment trust
2: that's that more re- mutual fund retail yes. thing that you guys weren't into. Very
0: smart group of guys, all Stanford guys, and they were they were really smart. And I don't mean to keep saying guys. There were girls there too, but they, this, these are three guys that I knew. What we started doing was surveys. I found out these guys did surveys, and their main question in those surveys was, how are we doing as a leadership team? It was that simple, and I'm sure it was a little more complex. So we started them way before we sold ourselves to Invesco, and when we were part of Invesco, Invesco started copying this, I'd say they got the idea from us, I don't know, but they started doing them as well, and we fell in with that one. We made a modified sum. So we found out, and most everybody believed they were anonymous, because they were. We had no idea, and we have enough people that no one would ever figure out, usually, right. uh, who is asking what question. But we really found out where our weaknesses were. And, and then we did something else we did fireside chats where I'd go around with another senior partner and sit down in smaller groups where they felt comfortable really talking unlike the quarterly staff meetings we had so you, they had a way to voice their opinion if we would if they could trust us enough to do it
2: so what and that's so that's that's for those of us in leadership that's a good practice to emulate What do you say the person who's bumping up against a leader who doesn't want to do those kinds of things? You know, a CEO that's not interested. It's uh, very tough. Um, Divisional vice president,
0: that kind of thing. It's very tough. To be honest with you, it's sort of up to the senior leaders of the firm to detect if there's a leader downstream over a group that is not behaving like we want that to look like. The first sign is you'll start seeing people leaving. We uh, executed an exit an exit interview process whereby they would be able to speak with our HR person by themselves and really let it out, hang out. Some of them still wouldn't talk, but it was up to us to find out if that person was countercultural to what we were trying to achieve. Right. And normally, it's the turnover, right. or the survey. We had one area of the firm; the survey would come back weak all the time out of that one area so then we knew how we had to work with that leader and yeah it was frustrating sometime
2: and this is for those of you who are not in a senior role this are still good tips because as you explore opportunities these are the kind of things you can ask for you can because when you interview for a job uh, you're also interviewing that company and you can find out what's the turnover like uh, what's the culture like and you know, one of the things that we work with and some of the clients that we help is to help them kind of up their cultural diagnostic game so they avoid a situation where the company is not doing the kinds of things that you did and to make it a true team atmosphere.
0: Stability is a huge asset. Yeah. We would take our BLS statistics with us to a finals presentation and show them our turnover relative. What's BLS? Bureau of Labor Labor Statistics oh. We would take those in and here we'd show a, a fraction of the turnover that a lot of our industry had. Hmm. We could also show them we've never lost a client. Okay. okay Those two things, people love stability and they love humility. So those are soft items that help you win.
2: That's really good And that, that sets us up for our next conversation, which is pillar three. And it's, it's all about winning, but David, thanks for this. Thanks for the stories and the insights and the practices that you embedded uh, in your senior team to have this kind of sense of cascading down team culture. So I encourage those of you who are listening to think about uh, your work situation, your environment, how can you, and like, how can you encourage, people to use the the gifts, the talents, the experience, their God-given capacities to make the whole better. And even if you're not in a senior role, you can be a a voice and an advocate for that. So David, thank you again, and we'll be back uh, on another episode and finish the model with Pillar 3.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. As we close this episode, I'm gonna use the H word, help. First, Help us help you. Do you want to grow in your effectiveness as a worker and leader? Are you wondering if you are in the right job or career? Maybe you lead a team and wonder how to make that team better. Go to vocacenter.org consult for an easy scheduling link and book your appointment with one of our great coaches today. We're ready to help you. Second, help us help others. This podcast is brought to you by generous donors who change lives by changing work through their investment at VOCA. If you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, donate to VOCA. Go to vocacenter.org give and begin your partnership today. We'll see you next time on the VOCA podcast, where we help you build resilient faith at work.